Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We have a, uh, another special set of classes, actually, that you get to listen to. So it deviates a little bit from our normal podcast uh, format. But Rob, explain what we have uh, going on for the next few weeks. We're talking about what is the kingdom of God? Perhaps no more significant question than maybe secondary to what is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, it means he's the king. And what's he the king of? And I think if we understand what the kingdom of God is, it'll really help us in so many different aspects of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, as well as answering all kinds of different issues. And so we're really going to begin to explore those questions. Cool. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this. We'll, you'll be getting these uh, shows along with our regular podcasts uh, for the next few weeks. So I hope you can glean from this and uh, continue to like and subscribe so you could always be updated on uh, what we're releasing. So enjoy this class on the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke 4, which I've gone over before for some of you in previous studies, is Jesus is entering into the synagogue in Nazareth and proclaiming that the kingdom of God's at hand. And what he proclaims in Luke 4 is that basically the year of Jubilee is here and the restoration of creation. And that's kind of what I wanted us to see, that this, this restoration, that the blind will receive sight and the lame will walk again and, uh, and the deaf will hear. It's this great restoration. So it's, and the point of that is it, it transcends salvation and just kind of quote unquote being saved. And an anecdote here, I was, there's a Phoenix seminary not, not far from here. And I had to do some research because I'm writing a, a chapter in a book uh, on hope in the book of Revelation. And the, the editor says, hey, you got a month left to finish this chapter. So guess what? I want to add to your assignment. <laughs> I'm really excited about that. Thank you. But he's like, hey, can you compare, you know, dispensationalism, which if you don't know what that means, it's like the popular end time stuff of Hal Lindsey and uh, Tim LaHaye and all those guys. You know, it's all about wrath and judgment, da, da, da. And, and what their view of hope is compared with, you know, what I'm, what I'm writing in my chapter. So I was in the library and I'm kind of, they had a bunch of books from Helen's, and you know, all these guys there. And so I'm, I'm reading them and I'm just like, oh, I was so grieved. It was, it was unbelievably grieving because I hadn't, and these are all the books I read in the 1980s into the early 1990s. And this is what I agree. And their whole, their whole thought was the world's getting worse. Isn't this awesome? It's clearly signed to the imminent return of Jesus. He's going to come anytime now. And we're certain it's going to happen in our lifetime. And we know that because look how bad the world is. And I'm thinking, this is horrible news. How can you? And then, and clearly the rapture is going to be soon. The world's in despair and God takes us out of the way. There's no hope for the world. I mean, it's just, it was so grieving to read this. Like, wait a minute. What about weep with those who weep and, and mourning? And, you know, and the whole idea of restoring and God using us to bring hope and peace and life. And I was, so I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so tragic. So I, and I just say that because I hadn't read that stuff for 15 or 20 years. And it just really gripped me like how destructive this thinking is. So uh, this is kind of the, the antithesis of that. So Romans 8, however, which is what we're going to look at tonight, kind of captures it all. And we're actually going to read the entire chapter. And then we're going to go back and discuss it. So let's kind of read the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Hmm. 
For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the spirit. The mind of a sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Out of the uh, NRSV, Romans 8, 11, uh, if the spirit of whom raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. And we cry, Abba, Father. It is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. Oh, no, I'm done there. Sorry. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider our, that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by his own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hopes that that the creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. <clears throat> we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. <clears throat> we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's start by just asking what, um, what strikes you there? What stands out? What, what, what thoughts do you have? Hey, Rob, this is Scott. So, I mean, the first part of it, I mean, I haven't read Romans for a while. Anyway, um, the law of the spirit. Okay. When I see something, a phrase like that, and then the law of the law of sin and death. Okay. What are the laws of the spirit? And what are the laws of sin and death? I mean, I'm guessing there's yeah. some formal definition. Yeah. Sure. That's Very that's much. one of the things that okay. sort of struck me. Very good. And right, we'll address that in a bit. Somebody else? It's just that there's no condemnation and mm. nothing can separate us from God's love. There you go. Very cool, and right? Throughout it and at the beginning and the end. Yeah, the beginning and the end. Very good, Anna. Yeah, very good. Yeah. The thing, that out, the thing that stood out to me was this um, 829. Mm. That made me question, you know, because those who whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So I found that interesting, and I'm curious about what that actually really means. All right, very good. Mm. Yeah. And one thing is like, the whole creation is groaning for yeah, us yeah. to be part of, you know, the redemption and that it's like God made everything. And we, I mean, rocks and trees don't have the same kind of spirit, but or they don't have the life that we have, but they're part of the creation. Okay. Very good. Yeah. As that particular section was being read, I couldn't help but resonate with what you were talking about earlier and that why would he go to the labor of all this tremendous creation yeah. just to damn it. But yep. as well, I was trying not to look at it uh, intellectually, but just go with the flow and feel yes, it. And yes. tell you, as somebody who survived a full arrest heart attack in Israel and didn't yeah, have right. history, didn't have any of that stuff. Um, the idea that, you know, we're more than conquerors. I'd never heard it read that way the way I read it, and it really resonated. Interesting. He's got our back in such a profound way. Yeah. When you live yeah. through something like that, you go, "Wow, this this is this is life giving. It's nurturing." So yeah. yeah. What year was that, Anthony? Did you that have a heart attack. Oh seven. Oh seven. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Fifteen years ago. Yeah. It's amazing. 
All right. Anybody else? Hey, Rob. I, yes. I just have one about the being predestined. I always have this feeling about that. Seems like uh, you know, are we? Do we have? Do we have a will, or don't we? Hmm. When I hear predestined, I always think of something as being orchestrated. Okay. And it, I guess, it bothers me. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's that's my comment. All right. We'll work our way there, and we'll do our best. How's that? So let's put it in. in. Okay. Very good. So let's look at uh, first off. Obviously, we're jumping in the middle of a book and taking one chapter out of the whole book, and you can't do that, right? Obviously, you have to look at it in the context of the entirety of, of the book let alone the entirety of the biblical story. So this, te this text fits into the, the biblical story. And in what you have in the book of Romans is kind of chapters one through four, which are telling you the, what we might call salvation story. As soon as I say it that way, obviously we think with a Western mindset of it's about salvation, but in chapter one, the whole creation is condemned because it rejects God and it doesn't know God. And even though God was plain to them, they, they still did not know God and they, they walked away from him. chapter two his answer is, oh, you covenant people, Israel, if you think you're any better, you're not. Even though you have the law, you're still in sin. So chapter three is like, well, wretched man that I am, you know, we're in trouble here, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then you get the climactic answer. The answer is that God sent Christ to be the means to which redemption comes. And then chapter four, uh, that's the fulfillment. God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in and through Jesus. And then he actually starts all over again in five, six, seven, and eight. He tells a story of salvation through the beginning with Adam, actually, in chapter five, six, seven, and eight. And in chapter seven, which is one of the most commonly misread texts, I say one of the most, but there's a lot of them that are commonly misread. But in chapter seven, we, we read it, we read the entire Bible, unfortunately, through individualism, individualistic eyes, right? It's about me. It's about my salvation. Oh, so chapter seven, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And, oh, Paul's talking about himself. I'm like, well, how can Paul say that? Oh, well, Paul's wrestling with, this is what we say. This is not correct. Uh, Paul's wrestling with his sinful flesh and his life in the spirit. And in his sinful flesh, he says, wretched man that I am. There's no way Paul would ever call himself wretched man that I am now that he's been redeemed. There's no way he's talking about himself. So he's using the first person, true, but that's mm -hmm. not uncommon. He's talking about, as you, as you read chapter five and six, chapter five starts with Adam. Uh, chapter six, of course, is the formation of Israel and the chosen people with uh, what we call baptism. But baptism was what happened when, when Israel was brought out of Egypt. When they were brought to the Red Sea, they were baptized. And he, Paul talks about our baptism in the same context as that. Chapter seven, then, is Israel under the law. And Israel under the law, the problem is this. The first thing to bear in mind is that the law actually is good. Anybody that says the law is not good has, sorry for your Lutheran, but has read too much of Martin Luther. It's, that's, not, that's not the case. The law is good. In fact, Paul even calls it good. So Romans 7, verse 12. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There you go. Romans 7, verse 12. The law is good. In fact, the law was actually meant to give life. The law was meant to give life. The problem was this. Our sinful flesh can't do it. It's not the problem with the law. It's the problem with the flesh, with us, who we are. We can't obey the law in and of ourselves. So now Paul goes on to say, so uh oh, well, we're in trouble. God gave us the law, right? So you're telling the story from Abraham, I'm sorry, from Adam 
uh, to the formation of Israel, to the giving, that's five, Romans six, Romans seven, now the giving of the law. Oh, here's the remedy. God gives us the law. Oh, but the remedy ain't going to work because who, look at us. We, we can't do it. And so Paul comes to this climax in the middle of chapter seven, and he says, Romans seven, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So there's the question, what's going to happen? And he answers it in chapter five, which leads into, I'm sorry, in chapter seven, 25. And then that leads into chapter eight. And he answered by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ah, there you go. Now, before we jump into eight, let's go back and look at one more verse that I kind of alluded to earlier, but Romans three, Romans three, and this is going to be a translation issue. So our translations are, are not going to like this. On the left side of my screen here, can you guys all see that? Um, if you have phones, it might be harder. I apologize. But what I'm showing you here is the first column is the New American Standard 1995 version. Apart from the law, Romans 3, verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the, the right, righteousness of God is this redeem, redeeming nature of God to bring about justice. Okay, The word right, righteousness is so often misunderstood as my personal righteousness or my personal piety. But in Romans, especially when it's applied to God, it means his faithfulness to the covenant. God made a promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless all nations through you and make a covenant with you. And then obviously with Moses and the righteousness of God is God's faithfulness to his covenant. So Romans one, we're all wicked sinners. Romans two, sorry, you Israelites, you are also the beginning of Romans three is, uh oh, we're all, you know, we're all wayward beings. What are we going to do? Oh, the answer is God's still going to be faithful to his covenant. And, how, and here's how it's going to happen. His right, righteousness has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that's the Old Testament, right? Law and the prophets. Now, verse 22. So the New American Standard reads in verse 22, even the, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Right? The ESV reads, the right, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Pretty similar. The Net Bible reads, namely, the right, righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's mm -hmm. no distinction. There's your one translation that's going to be different. The new, NIV is going to say, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. The N New Living Translation is going to say, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The New King James Version is going to say, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the New Revised Standard Version says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem with all those translations, except that the Net Bible, and my answer is going to be the Net Bible actually has it correct. Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If that's the correct translation, those two statements are redundant. Let me say it again. Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It says the same thing twice. Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe is the same thing. The Net Bible, however, says it two, it's saying two different things. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and it's for all who believe. Mm. The, the question yeah. is, how was God faithful to his covenant? That's what the word right, righteousness, when it applies to God, means his faithfulness in regards to the covenant. What was the covenant? I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to make all the nations know who I am through your seed, Abraham. I'm going to bring this redemption and restoration of creation through you. How and well, how's he going to do that? Romans one, we're all wretched sinners. Romans two, the Jews are included in the wretched sinners. Uh oh, we're in trouble. Romans three, how's God faithful? In the middle of Romans three, answer through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
meaning Jesus was the faithful Adam. He was the faithful human. He was obedient. He obe- he, what did he do? He followed the law. Remember, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Jesus obeyed the law, was faithful to the law, and because of his faithfulness, all who believe in him, well, are saved. I'll just say it that way. That's what Romans 3, does that make sense to everyone there? Let me kind of stop sharing the screen now so I can see your faces a little bit more. The point of that is, is God's faithfulness to his covenant was through, was through Jesus's faithfulness. By the way, the exact same thing happens in Galatians chapter one. Also, the reason why the translations go this way is because the Greek can go either way. So it's it, absolutely legitimate to translate the Greek either way. It's unclear. The book of Revelation begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, that can be read two different ways. It's the revelation from Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus, meaning it's his revelation that he's given to us. It's from Jesus. But it can also be the revelation that's about Jesus Christ. So the Greek can go either one of these ways. It can be either our faith in Jesus or it can be Jesus's faithfulness. And the answer is it's Jesus's faithfulness. And we know this now. It's widely believed now. By the way, this has gone back... It goes back to the mid-1970s when this was first realized. Hey, wait a second, guys. I think this is what's going on. And I think Martin Luther has it all wrong because it's not about faith in Jesus versus works of the law. That's not the contrast at all. It's how were we saved through the law? Oh, Jesus's faithfulness. That's what the answer is. And the scholarly world was like, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like this. 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know if I like this. Okay, I think I like it. Okay, well, maybe I like it too. And by the time you get to the 90s, this is becoming the scholarly consensus. The problem is this, it takes another generation before that scholarly consensus teaches our pastors. And then those pastors grow up and then they teach. And so it's going to take another generation where this becomes the norm in Christendom. But in 25 years, my speculation is, is that all the translations are going to read this way, read the way of the the Net Bible. This is what Paul's telling us now again in Romans 7. And that is, Who will set us free from this body of this death? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now we go to Romans chapter eight. Therefore, so verse 25 of chapter seven, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So on the one hand, I myself, and I myself is Israel. It's not him personally. It's the nation of Israel. Uh, On the one hand, I myself in my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Ah, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the first question I think that was raised, I think it was Scott that raised it or whatever it was, this contrast between the law of sin, the law of the spirit of life in Christ and the law of sin and of death. And what he's talking about is following the law by the power of the spirit or following the law through the flesh without the spirit. And that's the contrast between the two. It's not as Luther would have taught and as commonly accepted in Protestantism for the generations now since the Reformation. The contrast is not spiritual faithfulness versus literal obedience to the law. That's not the contrast. The Mm -hmm. law is good and holy and righteous. It's how are you going to obey the law? By the flesh or by the spirit in the spirit, meaning the Holy spirit. Now notice both of those are obeying the law. Notice the law actually is good. Jesus' words are, 
I didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Ah, how do we fulfill it? Through the spirit. Through the spirit. You know, the Bible project has that catchphrase that says, you know, the Bible's unified story pointing us to Jesus. Absolutely. But you can't stop there. Because from Jesus, it then points to the spirit. And I think you can make an argument that the spirit is equally or more significant in the New Testament than Jesus is. Once you get to John 12, or maybe beginning in John 13. Hey, guys, I got to go. Because if I don't go, the spirit won't come. But if I go, I'll send you another counselor. The focus of the end of John is that uh, the another counselor coming. Now, I actually don't think you can stop there either. Because I think the focus of the Bible actually is actually on the church, who is empowered by the Spirit, and in doing so is magnifying Christ by following Jesus in obedience to the law. There's kind of your whole biblical story. The purpose of that is, that's why I was so appalled when I was reading Hal Lindsey and these guys about, oh, we're so excited about how bad the world is going to be, and we're going to get taken out of the way. It's like, no, we are the remedy for the, for the creation. God called us to be a light unto the nations through the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to this in another study in the, the beginning of the new year, but this obviously accents the significance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, in the life of the church. I, I say believer, but we mean corporately in the life of the church also. You can't do it on your own. I, we can't do it on our own. We can, not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord. So we need the Spirit as a regular part of our daily walk in our daily life in Christ. Okay, so let me stop there. Questions or thoughts or comments on that? I I thought it, I think it's interesting because I don't know how the rest of you guys feel, but I mean, just through my years of different, you know, being at different churches, the spirits very seldomly spoken about. Like, yep. like if you got the average, you know, Christian folk and asked them, I you know, I thought we have three answers, right? Jesus, God, or love. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and if he's that important, right? Yeah, we yeah. replaced him with love, which is a good thing, but not good enough by replacing the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, well, I mean, one of the things when you start talking about the spirit, you must be a holy roller or Pentecostal. That's correct. Excuse me. I'm not trying not to be offensive or anything, but yeah. it's just, it's way out there. Yep. And it isn't, it's, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, our beliefs are often the result of a reaction to something else. So there's a big fear in a lot of Protestant circles of the, the, the hyper Holy Spirit movement, right? The charismatic movement. And so, yeah. well, I won't go down that road if I never even step a foot on that road. And so we'll just kind of like smash and, and kind of keep the Holy Spirit quelched so that we don't ever try to go, go you know, to that degree down there. And that is highly problematic. Now, I don't ascribe to charismatic theology, but I think they actually have a lot more correct than we actually give them credit for. The, the Holy Spirit is extremely prominent in our life. That doesn't mean I have to endorse the charismatic theological construct and all of that it happens, the second blessing and all. I don't believe that, but I do believe the Holy Spirit is it. And that's Paul's whole argument, in fact. This is the argument in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, there were these converts to Christianity from the Gentile and the Jewish world in Galatia and other Christians, I'll call them, we'll call them Christians. They at least were 
proclaiming themselves to be Christians, who were from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, were saying, you guys can't forsake the law. What are you doing? And they were demanding, so you, you Gentiles, you're welcome into our faith and you're welcome into our church, but you got to get circumcised first because the, the first sign of obedience to the law is circumcision. And Paul's answer to the Galatians was, wait a minute, did you receive the spirit before you were circumcised or after you were circumcised? And the answer is you receive the spirit without being circumcised. Duh, I win. The, <laughs> the Holy Spirit in your life is proof that you're in the covenant community of God. And that must be charismatic, by the way, because how would it, did hmm. you receive the spirit? It must have some, some kind of charismatic phenomena, which was probably speaking in tongues or something like that. So I think this is a part of the church's fabric but I don't think that I personally, I wouldn't go so far as to say, therefore, all Christians can speak in tongues. And that's something that we should all do. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on, but, but let's not react by overreact. Right, anybody else have a comment? I'm a little bit curious because I think sometimes when we say tongues or prophetic giftings or all these things, we're putting the spirit in a box. Mm -hmm. A lot of life changed. Yeah. Can't you oftentimes see a life that's profoundly changed? And who yes. am I to question what's affecting that person's life? If it's 180 degrees from there or going, it's something bigger than me. I know that much. Yeah. But is that not a testament to the spirit? And I think part of that too is, and one of your classes years ago, you talked about this and I locked onto it, having a very Christocentric outlook, and especially when we're studying. But how come we don't make that same emphasis on the spirit? In other words, okay. a spirit-centric outlook. Why is that missing? Like Leah said, it's everywhere in, part, in terms of it being absent. So. Absolutely. And so let me comment on that now. I think the first comment was along those lines also. I think Leah said something about we don't hear the Spirit in, the, in our churches and sermons as well. Now, mind you, the Spirit's role, if we were to call it that, and by the way, our, when we talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit, this triune uh, being, one nature, being God, yet manifesting in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, we often make too great a distinction between the persons, so the father's over here, the son's over here, and the spirit's over here, and never shall the twain, never the twain shall meet. That's not correct either. They are indivisible. You can't technically, some, somehow they are unique in that only the son of God became the man, Jesus Christ. True. Only the spirit of God indwells your hearts in this and manifests himself in the fruits of the spirit. True. But if we skip even the end of Romans chapter eight, it says in Romans chapter eight that we don't know how to pray. So the spirit and so the spirit utters prayers for us. He, he intercedes for us. Well, if you go down a few verses later, it says Jesus intercedes for us. Ah, it's both, isn't it? Jesus himself said, I'm going to be with you always. But as far as we know, he died, resurrected and ascended into heaven. And that's where he is because he's sending us the spirit. So if we were to call about the role of the Holy Spirit, we would say the Holy Spirit's role is to magnify Christ, to make him known. He will remind you of all that I have done and taught. The Spirit's role is to magnify Christ. Christ's role is to magnify the Father. That's John 1.18. He has made the Father known. So in a sense, all the glory to God through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. So if the Spirit's the one, for example, that inspired the scriptures, he's going to inspire the authors to not talk about himself as much as him inspiring the, the writers to make Christ known and thereby making the Father known. So that's one reason why we kind of have a diminishing emphasis on the spirit, because that's the spirit's role is not to talk about himself, but to make himself known through Christ. Now, certainly, however, he acts as the 
I think I would say it this way, as long as we clarify that there's not this indivisible nature between Father, Son, and Spirit, that the Spirit is the active person of the triune God in the life of the church today. That's an overstatement, though, because obviously Jesus is active, so is the Father, but essentially it's the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Spirit's going, going to come up in the New Testament and, and in the scriptures and in the life of the church where Paul says, hey, guys, you got the Spirit, you know it, right? Or Paul's going to say, hey, the fruits of the Spirit are this or the gifts of the Spirit are that. But they're not the gifts of the Spirit only as if the Father or Son had nothing to do with them. So I think that's part of it. But I think then the other part, Leah, to your, your comment there would be that it's a reaction sometimes that we're afraid of if we bring the Holy Spirit in a little bit, you know, we open the door a little bit, we're going to open it up a whole lot. It's going to get out of hand. I don't know how to stop Okay. Didn't Paul say like, don't quench the spirit. So, uh, you know, we got the reality is this, and I'm writing my series of blogs right now on the church as I started uh, the first post came out yesterday. It's a messy deal, folks. It's going to get messy no matter which way we go and we can squelch the spirit and cause problems or we can not squelch the spirit and cause problems and you know, to God be the glory and try to be, be careful to kind of stay in the, stay on the path as much as we can. So does that make sense everyone? The next thing to be aware of then is, I, I, I say this about apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is written to a community in crisis. They're undergoing some kind of crisis or an impending crisis. So the Roman Empire is persecuting the church in Smyrna. Say, hey guys, you better hang in there a little while longer, but it's okay because here's the good news. Apocalyptic literature was written to encourage a community in crisis to hang in there for a little while longer. Here's what's really going on. God's actually in charge and you're going to be okay. Well, if you read Romans 8 kind of through that kind of lens, it'll make a little bit more sense. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hang in there. It's going to be okay. You're okay. Now, it's going to be okay, right? If we bring the book of Revelation into it, if you overcome. See, if you allow the present crisis to overwhelm you and cause you fear and you walk away, well, there's no guarantees for that person. And again, as soon as I say these things, I know you're like, well, wait a minute. Okay. What side of the aisle is Rob on on eternal security here? You know, I thought he was ordained Presbyterian. So he can't be saying what I think. That's what we're doing. We're, we're thinking in these boxes and you can't think in these boxes because these boxes are actually modern constructions and they're not always adequate. So obviously the highly problematic passage that we're going to get to, right, is Romans 8, 28 and 29. Oh, those whom God predestined. And I was just, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're going to address this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and another comment about the boxes. I mean, that, that's the problem I have. Yeah. I don't know, a lot of people have about the overlay of uh, whatever, you know, whether it's, you know, a certain uh, branch of Protestantism or the Catholicism or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, how do I, how do I, un, you know, undo that perspective and get the, you know, just the essence of what's being conveyed to me in the Bible? Yeah, let me address so, that one first. The first answer is you're never going to get out of a box. There's, you're always going to be, because you can only think in light from, of the oh, context of your current worldview and your current situation. You only know what you know. And now what you want to do, however, is always have that box open Mm. And be ready to like get out of that box and discard it for a, a better one, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or maybe move to the other side of the box a little bit, right? Or, you know, or, yeah. or maybe okay. make the box a little bit bigger, you know, because the reality is, is that we have to be honest and enough to say, yeah, I was only thinking 
in this context because I was reacting out of a fear of the charismatic world. Ah, but I shouldn't be afraid of that. I don't know how to handle that yet. So the box mm. got a little bit bigger. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what to do with it when it gets out of control, but I'm also not willing to confine God to a small box because of my fears. Yeah. So there yeah. is this, I just think it's this integrity. What I've said before, I don't know where I got this from other than grace. You know, I look at my life and I go, there's just been so much grace. You know, mm. I just can't believe it. And one of the things that the Lord gave me as a young man was, follow the truth at all costs. Mm. So the yeah. problem with that is, is you first have to know what the truth is. And then the second thing you have to do is you have, you have to then obey it. Right? Well, we often don't want to obey it. So therefore I deny it. Mm. Words, what we do is we yeah. put number two in front of number one. What do I want to believe or what do I want to do or what do I not want to believe or not want to do? Okay, that becomes my barometer of truth. And then I go evaluate truth. And it has to fit my, my barometer of what I like and what I don't. Find the truth. That's why I call the ministry determined truth. Not because we've determined it, but because that's the goal. And that's the first goal is to, to determine the truth. Mm. Now, the next step is to have the integrity to say, oh, I was wrong. And not only was I wrong, but that meant I sinned or I erred in the past. Mm. And that means I need to change my ways in the present. And I need to go seek reconciliation. I mean, that's hard to do. By the way, if, if you go through the 12 steps of AA, you can see that in here, right? In that whole process, can't you? Oh, wait a minute. I have to be confronted with this reality. And then I have to go, oh, and what does that mean? And we just don't like doing that. We just don't. We, we like our comforts. We like our securities. We like whatever it might be. And that's one of the reasons why we keep our boxes the way we keep it. So I think that my encouragement would be, look, we all do this. There's almost no way to get around it, but we have to be willing to say, oh Lord, speak to me and allow and change my heart. And not only change my heart, but then change my, 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 my being, my actions and my life to reflect that. And the reality is, oh man, did it again. You're right. You know, we, it's, yeah. this is just this is part of life, but that's, that's what we're called to do is to deny ourselves, take up our cross and, and follow him. So I, I kind of would go that way. So let's touch on this kind of skipping down to the end, the Romans A part here in the context. And then we're going to go back and kind of highlight a few things as we finish up. The whole point of it is because you are in Christ Jesus, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if we keep on reading though, note what I said a minute ago is that's if you're obedient, if you overcome and look what he says in verse 16 and 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. So obviously the first spirit there now is the Holy Spirit, that we are children of God. And if children were heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Notice that little if there. And we're like, well, how does that fit my box of eternal security? It's like, stop, just put your box away for a little while. Okay, let's just, let's just read the text and see what it says here. Mm. And that is, we are heirs with Christ. But because we're heirs with Christ, we must also then suffer with it. This is the take up your cross and follow me part of the story. Oh, obedience and faithfulness to Christ and being part of the redeemed is a continuousness to it. And what do we do with eternal security? I don't know what you do with it. That's my answer. And I'm ordained Presbyterian. I don't know what you do with it. The Reformed and the, and the Armenian debates center around a couple of different issues. This is the primary one. And that is God's sovereignty 
and God chose you for salvation and he gave you grace. That grace is undeniable. You can't deny it because otherwise, because you have no free will. This is taking Romans 3, the beginning of Romans 3, like to uh, on steroids. There's no one who does good. You are not capable of doing good, Romans 3 says. So reading it on steroids says you can't accept Christ with, by faith because you're not capable of doing so. Now, sometimes they'll say, and if you could do so, that would be a work and God would owe you salvation and salvation is by faith and, and not by works. Having faith is not a work, but that's kind of the idea. So that's one camp. God gave you grace. God's totally sovereign. He chose you. He only chose some, obviously, because, well, why isn't everybody saved then? Well, he didn't choose everybody. And Calvin and Luther both taught that, by the way. Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. That's not actually John Calvin who wrote that book. It's Luther who wrote it. The will is in bondage and unable to accept salvation from God. So God must change our will. And that's what grace is. Other side of the, of the table is no, God respects us because he created us as free beings. I'm a sinner. So I have this proclivity to sin. That's what I will do. But salvation is only made available. This is the other side of the box. Uh, by God giving us grace and giving us the opportunities for salvation. And now those who have salvation, who choose to accept him, are indeed saved. Now that seems pretty simple. However, both those two boxes kind of go a little bit further. The first one that says, God gave you grace, only those who get grace are saved because it's irresistible. Well, go on to say, you can't actually lose your salvation then either because God gave it. It's not yours to win or to lose. He chose you, you're his child. That's it. My sheep are mm -hmm. my voice. They know me. No one can fetch them out of my father's hand. And they go to those kind of verses and say, your salvation is eternally guaranteed in Christ because God's sovereign, not you. On the other side, it's, well, God's sovereign, true, but he gave us grace. And if I respond to that grace by faith, I can be saved. But if I decide tomorrow to not be saved, I'm not saved tomorrow. And so I can lose my salvation. And obviously within those two views are the spectrum, right? There's some people that are kind of more in the middle, some people way on the far right that everything is predestined. Me saying everything is predestined was actually predestined. And then on the far side of the, of the equation is, Every moment of my life is a moment of my choice. And I asked somebody this one time, I said, if you were driving down the highway and you're, you know, you just had just prayed to Christ and you're totally gotten forgiven everything else. And all of a sudden you look up and you see a car coming at you from the other side of the freeway and you swear, do you go to hell? Well, I don't know. All right. So that's, th those are your extremes and everything in the middle in there because I'm ordained Presbyterian, I'm supposed to be on the first side of the camp. I'm supposed to be on the side that says, oh, God's sovereign. God gave us grace and it's irresistible and we can't choose it or deny it. And then he damns others because he doesn't give them grace. He doesn't really damn them. He just doesn't choose them for salvation. But I don't have a problem <laughs> with it because what I like about that side of the equation, what I think is healthy and right. And by the way, I think that neither side's right. They're both right. Okay. That, that's my solution. And it's not, I'm not walking the middle of the fence. I'm just simply saying, you're trying to put God inside a human made box and God's the one that's outside of it. And our ability to understand is limited because we're in the box, not him. The reason why I like that side, however, is because the stress is on God's sovereignty. That's where the stress needs to be. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done. The other side of the box is I can choose salvation kind of does make my choosing this righteous thing that God kind of owes me for if we take that too far. I agree with the idea, but I think it can lead to an unhealthy sense of I'm in charge of this ship and therefore I can choose him today and, and deny him tomorrow. No, God's in charge of the ship. My ways are not your ways. 
and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. And what I think is happening is, is somehow God chose you and you had free will. And they're both true and we can never figure out how. And the reason why we can't figure out how is because we don't understand God's sovereignty and how that works. That yet God's in control, yet God didn't pull the trigger and make that person shoot that person. We wouldn't, that, that's, not, that's not attributed to God. It's attributed to that person's free will, but that free will wasn't independent of God. And so they're both kind of correct. And we can't figure out how they work out because God transcends us. He's a being who's outside of time. So today's the present, but so is 20 minutes ago. And that doesn't make sense to us. And I think that's how we reconcile this. So I tend to lean on the side of the box that says God's sovereign, but I don't deny human free will. And so I don't believe, for example, in the old, the strong Calvinist position of irresistible grace and unlimited atonement. The idea of unlimited atonement is Jesus only died for those who he's going to save. He didn't die for everybody. He only died for some. And the some are the ones who are chosen. I don't see that in scripture. For God so loved the world, takes care of that problem. So it seems like he died for everybody. But I like that side of the, of the equation as a stress, because I do believe that it truly and rightly emphasizes God's sovereignty and God's holiness. I do believe in eternal security. I just don't think I know what that means. So yeah, I can't lose my salvation. But at the same time, if I don't overcome, I guess I'd say that means I'm not saved. See the dilemma though? Let me yeah, kind of speak to this yeah. a, little, a little bit further. The dilemma goes a little bit further by saying, if I believe I'm eternally secure and I can't lose my salvation, then I can just kind of take it. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to a Bible study. I'm not going to read. I'm not going to pray. I don't have to. I'm saved and nothing can happen. Nothing can separate from the love of God. That doesn't make any sense. At the same time to say, well, I can be saved today and, and damned tomorrow. No, that's not emphasizing God's sovereignty. It's putting your emphasis upon you. And I have to do good works today to make sure I stay in the faith. No, I just have to overcome. And I have to overcome by the grace of God, not by doing anything, but by relying upon his spirit. With all that being said, Romans 8 is not addressing that. Okay. So uh, <laughs> we made this question in Romans 8, but that's actually not what the text is talking about. To go to Romans 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together to, for good to those who work, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For, those, for whom he, knew, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And what Paul's talking about there is the process of becoming like Jesus. And that's the whole point, by the way, the process is to become like Jesus, is this God's sovereign process. Now, that doesn't deny human freedom. Paul would never deny. I, I just don't see how you can read Paul that way or read the scriptures that way when it says, choose you this day whom you will serve. You know, if you have faith, if you believe uh, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, I mean, clearly there's a human role in this equation. But what Paul's doing is encouraging those to whom he's writing by saying, it's okay because the process that God started, and that's the point of Romans 8, 28 and 29, the process that God started, God will bring it to fruition. Now, can we take this as the reform view says, therefore, that's a done deal and it's irrevocable and there's nothing that can be done. No, this is not this absolute thing that says God started it and he will absolutely finish it. And you could just go off and be this wayward child 
and do whatever you want, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you're going to be conforming the image of his son. No, that's, I don't think that's correct. I just don't, I don't think you can read the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. How do you read that verse? The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. I think it's Matthew uh, 24, 13. And say, I don't have to worry about doing any, any good works because good works are, are part of the flesh. That's not the, no. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And what does persevering mean? It means following Jesus, which means if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. And you see how I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth? Because I am. Because that's, that's the answer. It's obedience through the power of the, and personal Holy Spirit, relying upon Christ, becoming like Christ, and at the same time being secure that he is the loving Heavenly Father. And yeah. Talked a lot? A lot of heavy stuff. Any thoughts or comments here? None of which, by the way, was the reason why we're, re we're reading Romans chapter eight. <laughs> that, that's the irony here. I got like a whole lesson to still do, but uh, I'll summarize it quickly. So, John. Rob, can you speak specific, and you may have been doing that, okay? but speak specifically to, to those he foreknew. Yes. God knows everything. And it doesn't simply mean the ones he chose in advance, because if it means the ones he chose in advance, then the previous statement is redundant. It says, for those whom he predestined, he also foreknew. They can't mean the same thing because it's, it's like, why say the same thing? So predestined is the sovereign grace of God and his election and, and his choice. And remember, God chose and made a covenant with us as an act of his choice. Reading it too strongly, I would think, is to say, God's choice is the only way it can occur, and therefore he does so in violation of human freedom. I don't think that's what's going on, but I don't think we can ever know how to reconcile that. So he predestined us, true. And he, and he foreknew this was going to happen. And that's true also. So, yes, Gary. Well, part of it is, is like you said earlier, that he's outside of time. Yes. So that means he... He sees everything from the beginning to the end. Right. And so, yeah, he knows that I'm not going to get to heaven, even though I'm spending my life. So, you know, because he's already there at the end. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of foreknowledge is he chose me in my mother's womb. Okay, he, he knew me. I was fearfully and wonderfully made right. in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. Or, or, and the answer is yes, because yeah. God has this, this knowledge there. So I joke once in a while that I don't like theology and whatever, and I'm a biblical scholar, a New Testament scholar, and those in biblical studies, we don't like the theology department. And here's the reason why I say that. Obviously, you can't separate them all. We're all doing theology, and we're all doing biblical studies at the same time. They're not separable. The problem is this, is when these debates, and I was in, raised in churches and raised as a young man and, and youth groups and college groups, and we debated this all the time. But the reason why I got disgusted with those debates was I thought, at the end of the day, if I'm on side A or side B, is it going to change the way I'm supposed to live? Yeah. And no. Now, if I take side B too far or side A too far, yeah, it will. Because side A too far is I don't have to do any work. I don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm good to go. That's not work. That's not correct. So I know that's wrong. And if I take side B so far, like, oh, I'm going to worry every single moment whether I'm saved or not. That's an unhealthy focus on self. Can't go that far. But if I'm anywhere in the middle on, I, on A or B, 
I'm going to pray, fast, study, read, fellowship, do justice, love Christ, take up my cross. I'm good to go. It doesn't matter what side I'm on anymore, does it? Now, I do say, just to reiterate, well, yeah, but I'm also going to stress God's sovereignty in this one. I'm, I'm, that one I'm not going to play again. Okay, I'm on that one. I'm on side A. It says God's sovereign. And so th that's why I don't like theological debates because like, let's, can we just get on with this? Because I think the whole point of it is I'm just supposed to obey this and do this and be like Christ. I don't need to debate that issue any longer, do I? Hell, does hell exist or not? You know, I don't know, but it does in some ways. A little flames of fire. I don't know if, I mean, does it matter? No. My job is to make sure nobody goes there. Yeah. That's what I'm really concerned about. Whatever there is, whatever there's like, mm -hmm. annihilation, death, unconsciousness, or actual physical torment, I don't know what it is. I don't like the physical torment because it just doesn't seem to reconcile with the God that I know very well. But nonetheless, I'm just supposed to make sure nobody goes there. And then what we do is like, oh, oh, oh Rob believes this about hell. I'm not going to go to that church. Like, seriously? Come on. I think we've, we've gone a little too far on these, on these issues with, with divisions there. So let me summarize quickly here. Sorry, we've kept you so long. The, 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 the overarching theme of what I was trying to get across here, and what I was trying to get across was that through, through the Spirit, we have become renewed, renewed persons now uh, by means of the Spirit. And if you read verses 1 through 11, it's this contrast between this life in the flesh, i.e. without the, trying to obey the law without the spirit versus life in the spirit and obeying the law through the spirit, which then leads us to suffering with, with him. And verse 12, we're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, uh, you must die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh or, or the body, then you live. There, there's your contrast. But then what he goes on to say is verse 18, Look, the whole creation is waiting for its liberation from its bondage to decay. Uh, verse 22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's not just the saving of us and snatching us up to heaven, but God's actually in the process of redeeming and restoring all of creation. And then not only does the whole creation groan, but even we ourselves groan. Verse 23, look, we ourselves groan as we await the adoption as sons, meaning, yeah, we are co-heirs with Jesus, but we're also awaiting this adoption thing. And that adoption thing is the resurrection. So the creation groans, and then we groan. And then he says in verse 26, the spirit groans. Because we don't even know what to pray for in this meantime thing. As we're awaiting this restoration of all of creation, we don't know what to pray for, but the spirit does. So he groans for us. So as I pray... This was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to fix that one. And he intercedes for us. And then obviously he says a little while later that Christ himself also groans. Now, in the meantime, as we're awaiting the restoration of creation, as we're awaiting the, the redemption of all creation and creation's waiting for it also, it's difficult. And therefore Paul says, look, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. Now, I, going back to the previous, I think there's human will and divine sovereignty at the same time. Sure. But take courage. Nothing's going to separate you from the love. Look, can, can, can life nor death nor principalities or spirits, things to come? No, it can't. That doesn't mean, okay, I can sit back and do nothing because that's absolutely not what he's talking about. It just means we're not fighting a losing battle. We're empowered by the spirit, but the battle we're waging is for the entire restoration of all of creation. 
and I think I put this in the notes, but if you look at the whole idea of the biblical story is where's it's going. It starts in the garden and it ends in the garden. It starts in Genesis one in the garden of Eden and it ends in Revelation 21 and 22 in the garden of Eden. It's the garden of Eden restored and uh, resurrected and glorified. It's, I think maybe you might say it's better than it was before because we're resurrected, mm-hmm. but it's the garden of Eden. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, it's got Eden imagery all over. It's got streets of gold because there was gold in Eden. It's got rivers of life because the river, it's got the tree of life. It's Eden imagery all through and through. And so that's, and what is Eden though? Eden is the restoration of creation. And we've read it as like, oh, there's the heaven and earth pass away and we get this eternal heaven thing. No, heaven and earth pass away. The old creation and the old creation of sin and of death and of despair and disease and hunger and pain, that passes away. But God restores the creation. And the best way to illustrate that is through the resurrection. Just like Jesus rose, so shall we rise and so shall the creation rise. Ah, so what is the, the reason why I brought that into this study is because to live according to the kingdom of God is to seek the restoration of all creation. Mm. That's why. So does that make sense there? And we can go into it more. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.